Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Mike and Wade. We are doing our COVID-19 online learning experience for our Wisconsin Lutheran College students. We today are going to do Theology 105, which is Intro to Scripture. For those of you who are listening in, who are regular subscribers to our podcast, welcome. Um, sorry that we're giving you all this content right away. Um, you Please don't unsubscribe. You can... Uh, you can adjust how your uh, uh, the episodes come to you, um, and uh, if you need to skip over this and wait for a regular episode, uh, that's just quite all right as well. Today we're going to be talking about Philippians and Colossians, but then also what we what we would narrowly call theology. So it's all theology, the study of God, but this in particular, the Trinity and the attributes of God. We've already talked about this in, in our class too, so this is sort of kind of supplemental. And so, uh, I, once again, we're going to give everything short shrift just because it's a it's that type of intro class. But it, it's still good to to get it all into one semester so you can see the big picture for our freshmen. All right. So Philippians, a letter of Saint Paul. If you remember, uh, Saint Paul was in prison in Philippi, and there was a congregation that was set up. Philippians is written from another prison when he's under house arrest in uh, Rome in his quote-unquote fourth missionary journey. I don't tend to dwell on that too much in 105, uh, this intro class. Try to get a little bit more to the text a little bit. So um, I'd like to talk about the imitation of Christ. So I've already jumped ahead to chapter two here. Um, you know, maybe I'll, I'll just read uh, some of the more famous passages there um, from Philippians chapter two. Um <clears throat> I'm going to start at verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he concludes, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, <clears throat> last uh, episode we were talking about Hebrews and Christology, and so we already talked about the humiliation of Christ how he did not make himself, did not make use of his full uh, powers at certain uh, occasions. And here's an example of, right, he humbled himself and became obedient, uh, even to death, even to death on the cross. And then God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And so his, what we call his session, that is him seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, ruling all things, that would certainly be a part of his exaltation. But what I'd like to talk about right now is imitation. So how do we imitate Christ? Uh, I have some, I, I kind of got a, a way to think about this, but I'll throw it to you, Wade, too. Like the imitation of Christ, maybe you want to just start historically. That was kind of a big deal, especially in the medieval church. Yeah, I like to imitate Christ by carrying a big cross through my neighborhood. <laughs> That's uh, it? Yeah. Right. I'm just joking. So um, imitation of Christ, I mean, is... It's even one of the the most, uh, um, I still think one of the most published books in the history of publishing, not just in Christianity, 
um, would be uh, Thomas Akempis and the imitation of Christ. So this is a theme that's been very important in church history. And you see it, for instance, in the monastics where they take an imitation of Christ to be celibate and poor, Jesus says, foxes of holes and birds of the air have nests, but I have nowhere to lay my head, um, to be obedient as Christ was to the Father. Uh, usually I think the imitation of Christ in these ways then has been taken largely in a a moral sense, but there's also the um, the very biblical imitating of Christ in a dispositional sense. Mm-hmm. Um, we have that at the college when people talk about being a servant leader, right? Uh, Christian leadership, and so we have Jesus washing Peter's feet on campus. Uh, so there can be not good, literally; it's just a statue, right? But this um, this can be a very uh, good thing to Christ is an example. It's not that he's not an example. Uh, it's just that he's primarily Savior. When you miss that is when there's there's problems. <clears throat> but I think it's especially interesting to look at imitating Christ as as Paul is speaking about here. Uh, and, and this is a, a humble disposition that one will have. Well, why is that? Uh, because we have nothing we haven't received by grace. Um, and so we can live as those who are living on borrowed time with borrowed things. Um, and because we are set free from having to serve ourselves to score points with God, um, we can be humble towards another, recognizing that they also are people for whom uh, God would have us show grace and, and mercy. Yeah, so and I, let me play with something, and I, I, I'm being legitimate here. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not quite sure if I've thought this all the way through. But, um, you know, when when, when St. Paul talks about, you know, uh, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped i don't want to read too much into that like uh, to god to jesus not understand it, it, it you know this is part of his humiliation or whatever um but he understood his his role in this right equality with god he certainly was equal with god right um but but um made himself nothing for the sake of other people. We didn't, I don't want to dwell on that, but what I do want to dwell on is a concept that Luther sort of talked about with the imitation and then comes into a discussion about vocation. Remember, vocation is how God calls you to uh, serve your neighbor. And so a lot of times we get into this imitation as a law thing, right? So I am, I'm supposed to do what Jesus says. So think about the bracelets. Uh, what would Jesus do, right? So I, so Jesus becomes kind of this nag. You're like, um, should I punch somebody in the face? And you look down in your wrist like, oh, Jesus wouldn't do that. I shouldn't, I shouldn't do that. Um, Jesus becomes just kind of law. He becomes kind of even kind of a, a little bit of a nag. You, you got to live up to this. But Luther, when he was attacking the idea of imitation, he always saw it as, in two ways. One was, maybe more than this, but one way it wasn't about always about neighbor. But the other way was imitating Christ is, first of all, it's going to end up being a poor imitation. But actually, God has something better for you than imitating Christ. When you become the hand of God, in your vocation. So think the pastor says, I forgive you, not God forgives you. When a little boy prays for a meal, he thanks mob for making his mac and cheese, but then also thanks God. That the mother is the hand of God in that moment. This is how God fed the child. And so the child rightfully thanks God and thanks the mother. 
that you are more than the imitation of God. You are the hand of God at that moment in a very profound way. And also, imitating saints and imitating Christ, it's an impossible thing. And I'm not just talking about because we're not perfect, although that's truly part of, part of the deal. But that, there's n- but that you are unique and each situation is unique. So there has never been a situation tonight when you, Dr. Johnson, go home and you treat and, and you deal with your children and that at, at that that in that evening whatever way like that's never happened before that is unique as unique as god serving them through you and so it's not like we're just trying to imitate them that and to be a cheap imitation he lifts us up to an even higher degree than that and we become god's co-workers in this in this very unique situation and so then i look at I put myself into these phrases and instead of saying, I could not consider equality with God something to be grasped. This is, you know, talking about Jesus Christ. I cannot consider working with God, imitating Christ, something to be grasped because he has made me righteous. I can't even, I can't even think about, I can't even, it's hard for us to even explain that. What does it mean? Does it mean that we just declared righteous or that we actually are righteous? How does that work out? How does it work out that we work with him and that, and then he, he creates good deeds in advance for us to do. And he does this uh, through us, through our vocations. It's something that we can, can't even grasp. Right. And so I I don't know if I'm going too far here, but I kind of like to play with that a little bit, hopefully in a, in a, in a sanctified way and to say, I have something better than the imitation of Christ that I'm striving for. I am Christ to you when I serve you and you are Christ to me when you serve me. It's something even more than that. It's something so mysterious that we can't even quite put our finger on. Anyway, that's some, a little bit of my speculation, hopefully uh, not, not too far afield there. Um, Some other things with Philippians, uh, probably one of the more famous ones, well, two more famous ones, one in chapter three and one in chapter four. In chapter three, uh, he, St. Paul uses this uh, race analogy, running a race as uh, to, to depict the Christian life. So I'll read from verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So the, you know, in Philippi, you're not that far. Uh, in that uh, if you, if you're looking at a map, it's, you're talking uh, north of Greece and Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica. You're by, by Mount Olympus, right? And, and all that comes with that. And so uh, the idea of maybe even early Olympic games and athletic events and running and a marathon and all that kind of stuff would have been in the, in the public consciousness, right? And so he uses this idea of the Christian life is like running a race. And so when you're running a race, especially as a sprint, you need to keep your eye on the goal. Like if you turn to the left or the right to see who is beside you, it literally slows you down, right? And so you want to press on towards the goal. Don't worry about something behind you. Don't worry about those comparing yourself to other people. And I think that's a fairly good analogy. That's not the main point of St. Paul's picture here. But um, the things that I have done in the past, they're forgiven. They're gone. No reason to dwell on them. And the things that have 
have have been awful awfully done to me uh if they are forgiven they are done they no longer should haunt me it doesn't mean i don't forget about them but it is do i dwell on them so that they define me no you press on to the goal and the goal of course is heaven now at first glance it seems a little trouble uh having read and gone through a bunch of saint paul's stuff already it says win a prize am i supposed to win the prize am i supposed to run well that's not the point of the analogy right so we we don't we don't need to go there and sometimes it sure seems like God is dragging us across the finish line, knocking over hurdles, right? I mean, that that's probably more accurate. The point is that this and it's, is... And it's not a call there, by the way, to finish first. No. The prize isn't that you did the best and finished first. And so he's just using the analogy of running a race and that at the end of the race, there is a prize. And the prize is heaven, right? And the and point so, is finishing the race. Yeah, calling you heavenward and... God will get you across. He's going to drag you across sometimes, it seems like. Um, and that that prize is going to be a perfect body like Christ's perfect body. I don't think I read that. I'm going to jump to verse 20 to finish this out. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So this is just a fantastic thing. First of all, we have dual citizenship, one in heaven and one here. Ultimately, our heir, our inheritance, I should say, is in heaven. That's who we truly and finally are. So we are citizens of heaven primarily. And think of a citizenship of the kingdom of God right now, even though we are the church militant still fighting on earth and not yet the church triumph triumphant the one in heaven um, ultimately that is our identity All, ultimately that is our citizenship that's where our inheritance lies but we have dual citizenship we have citizenship here in this world too and um, we we look forward to that heavenly home the prize is a perfect body right and it's just so beautiful like to say to somebody in a hospital bed who has whatever disease you know that this body that has betrayed you here will be perfect in heaven. Do you know that there's no eyeglasses and there's no doctors? There's no pandemics and there's no, um, you know, there's no hospital beds. There's no wheelchairs. There's no doctors. We don't need it because you have this glorious body like Christ's glorious body. What does exactly that look like? I don't know. I just know that there is not going to be the suffering that we have down here. So you can imagine going to somebody who is suffering to a nursing home as we pastors did and we're saying yeah it's the middle of the race it's tough right here right but let's uh let's refocus on the prize here and we'll get there finish strong um and god will get you across and you're going to have this perfect body to replace the body that has betrayed you here on earth i'm going to finish up philippians with uh kind of i think a cool uh a verse um, from Philippians 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I, I really kind of like, I tie this, of course, since I've been thinking about flourishing a lot lately, uh, the, the type of uh, things that we should think about he says, the beautiful, the great, the wonderful, right? Think about such things that 
we again are not people that just are satisfied with subsistence living, just surviving, but we, we have the sense of art, we have the sense of beauty, we have a sense of all these things. Now, he's thinking in spiritual terms here, of course, you know, uh, the, the, but, but all the things that we think about as beautiful and wonderful are tied to morality and tied to an objective truth, right? So I, I think if we can broaden uh, Philippians 4, 8 out, to, to, this is a quest for truth, a quest for beauty, a quest for flourishing, a quest for um, living a full life, the good life, the highest good. Um, I, and I, I find that, you know, if, if I would start a liberal arts college, this may be my <laughs> the passage, right? You know, uh, whatever whatever is admirable and all those things. And I, I not to go, I don't want to go in too in-depth in that, but just kind of a cool, cool phrase there. All right, we got to keep going. Colossians. Colossians in, is in modern-day Turkey, Turkey, Asia Minus, so or across the Aegean Sea from Philippi and a little bit south. Um, Colossians is a hard one. It's kind of one of my favorite books, but it's a hard one to kind of pinpoint what the problem is. What is St. Paul talking about here in Colossians? It seems that there are some people in Colossae who have been taken by another sort of philosophy. Now, I, I hesitate to call it Gnosticism because we don't know and we're not quite sure if Gnosticism in that era had fully developed, but there certainly was this idea out there of a thing called a, a, a Gnostic sort of religion. That could be Christian Gnosticism, it could be uh, some sort of pagan Gnosticism, it could be even Jewish Gnosticism, I suppose, in, in some forms. The idea there it comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, that someone gets a special knowledge, and that special knowledge gets them enlightenment, and they're on a journey, and the journey really is to kind of rise above the physical. So the spiritual is more important than the physical. And either the physical is seen as something suspect that keeps us down from a higher spiritual plane and should be ignored or should be beaten down, or it can be kind of kind of a libertine, libertine kind of thing. I don't know if that's the right word, but this idea that, well, since the body doesn't matter, I can kind of well, I can have sex with whoever I want. It doesn't really matter. It's not libertine, connecting. Yeah. yeah. So you can go in both ways. And this is, I think, very important today because I think the modern world was very Gnostic in that sense. You think spiritually, in Christian ways, you can see X number of uh, groups that would deny everything down to card playing and wearing skirts that go above the ankles, right? But you can also see in our society that the, the physical just is not connected to the soul or there is no soul at all. And so what you do with the body does not matter morally, right? As long as you don't uh, interrupt somebody else's, uh, uh, some, somebody else's freedom. So I think this is, this is important. And so what St. Paul, uh, how St. Paul uh, interacts with this is he talks about Christology, Right that the mystery is Jesus Christ, um, and that in the fullness of Christ, the deity lives. And maybe I'll stop and ask you, uh, uh, Wade, what, what, do you, what do you take when you hear um, that the fullness of the deity lives in Christ? Well, I think the idea, um, A, is if you think of the ancient world and, and idols and the idea of how you interacted with idols and how they, react, how they related um, to the divine, is uh is the god or goddess within that is it some reflection of their divinity um you're getting that christ is something better and more than 
than anything else that you would find in, in idols or other religion, um, <clears throat> that he is the fullness of the, the deity. But also, <clears throat> just to go back to you know this particular Colossian heresy that he's combating, and this doesn't mean that the Colossians were heretics, but the, <clears throat> the heresy that people were trying to spread amongst them was uh, <clears throat> a, a failure to attack the material, um, to think that the material is less than the spiritual. And so that... <clears throat> Uh, Paul is in essence saying that there is no God you can have, no God you can serve apart from the man Jesus Christ. That this, all of the deity is in this man Jesus Christ. And so, you know, in building on when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me, I and the Father are one, is that you can't have, after Christ came, you can no longer have a God who does not have a body. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Is that yeah, what you're asking? I think so. And so at the end of Colossians, I think he does bring it back. Like, and that, that Christ is then truly God as well. Once again, he's not he's not part God, um, but he is of one substance with the Father, as we would say in the Creed. And, and I think you know, Paul is finally pastorally trying to say, you know, like he says, check yourself with these bodily things. Like don't get too, you know, watch yourself with these um bodily temptation so he's not like he's he tries to balance that but at out, the same right? time enjoy the things of physical life that are not sin too it's it's interesting sometimes from colossians that do not handle do not touch will be quoted by people um in like a way of like christians shouldn't do this or that when in actuality paul is warning them against people who say do not handle do not touch yeah. um those who would uh that would downplay or undermine um the physical gifts that, that God grants. And, and that think, heaven will, will include these same physical Oh, absolutely. Things. And maybe even, yeah. I, when we look at spectrums, we're like, try to stay in the middle. So you don't want to be too Gnostic in the sense that the spiritual or the physical is bad. Do not do not touch, do not handle. But you don't want to go too far in this Gnosticism where you say the, the physical doesn't matter and so you can just kind of, like you said, just yeah. sleep with everyone. Like when I go for a breathing <clears throat> test, Mike, the one they have me do now, it's almost like a video game. <clears throat> you got to take a deep breath mm-hmm. and then you blow out mm-hmm. and you have to keep blowing at the same pace so that this uh, little ball thing stays right in the middle of this line. And so it's really hard to do. So sometimes you go, Ooh, you're, yeah. you're too hard and you're this way mm-hmm. and then you got to lessen up, but then you swing mm-hmm. way back the other way. And Paul is, is trying to say, it's really hard to keep that balance. You're going to sometimes swing but uh, but really try to keep it in them. Pass your breathing test. And the more I think about it, when I think about these spectrums, and we can talk about it all in, in all aspects of life. There's a lot of things that it really is more like a sphere. So here you're you're on the you're on the top of a ball trying to balance. And the more you go left, the more you go right. You end up actually being in the same place. So we can think of the populism on the left and populism on the right. We can think about work righteousness coming from different uh, sects and, and Christianity that seem to be polar opposites. And I think Gnosticism can go due ways, but at the end, it's both it's both this kind of Gnostic uh, problem. All right, <clears throat> I'm going to switch gears here. We're going to talk about theology, so the study of God. Uh, real quickly, we've kind of mentioned a little bit, but we'll talk about the, the triune God. So we're going to be very succinct about this. The Father is God, the Son, Jesus Christ, is God, the Holy Spirit is God. This is clear in Scripture. What is also clear in Scripture is that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. So if you're looking on page 23, students, you can see that <clears throat> that symbol there that kind of uh, organizes that for you. 
So there's one God, but three persons. Uh, so three persons say three distinct uh, persons, right? I, you almost want to think personality, all that, that can get us into trouble. Um, <clears throat> that the Holy Spirit is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, but there is one God, and this is a mystery. Again, we find that one plus one plus one does not equal three, but one, and the math doesn't work out, and we're okay with that <clears throat> because it's God. <clears throat> and quite frankly, I don't want a God that I can fully understand because that means that it's a God as complicated as mine. my mind could come up with it, and that would be a pretty poor God. Now, when we think about the triune God, we cannot unravel this mystery. We just have to let it be. However, I think we can have some sanctified speculation on why this might be. So we understand, and I think we can logically say, why one? Well, if you have multiple gods, who's in charge? Who created whom? Who was first? And I think you have to finally come to a first cause. Like, if, you know, my parents caused me and their parents and their parents and their parents caused them all the way through, you can't have an infinite series of causes. You finally have to get down to one first cause. This is true. This is not because the Bible says so. This is, uh, you know, uh, a lot of philosophers have said this as, as well. Think even Big Bang theology or cosmology, that there had to be one point that, that started it all. <clears throat> Two seems to be problematic because you can kind of get into like a dualistic kind of God, right? Maybe like a yin and a yang and a good and an evil. And people have tried that. that I, mean, I suppose it wouldn't have to be good and evil, but a dualistic God still has the same problem. It doesn't seem to make sense. Trinity seems to make even more less sense, or it seems to make even less sense. But when you think about it like... Uh, Augustine did, since this is my class, we're going to say it the right way, Augustine, instead of Augustine. Augustine said that in order for God to be, I'll put words into his mouth a little bit here, in order for God to be eternally loving, right? So God is loving, God is eternal, and God can't change. But how could God be eternally a God of love when there was nobody to love but himself, right? And so the way he plays that out is God the Father is the lover, God the Son is the beloved, and the Holy Spirit is the love that goes between both of them. I'm not saying this is true. I'm not saying it does, certainly doesn't, uh, doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't uh, solve the math problem, but there's something there about this, right? That there, It's just to point out that there's something else going on beyond us, and that's okay if there's something else be going beyond us. And by the way, it didn't have to be that way. There's nothing that says... God had to be loved, but he was. And so that's a very profound thing. All right, I'm going to kick it to you, Wade. What is the essence of God? What would I, if I would try to define the essence of God versus his attributes, give me some examples. What do I mean by that? Uh, you're asking what's the difference between his essence and his attributes? Yeah, and maybe some examples. Well, his attributes are things that we can say of him. Um, an attribute may or may not be essential to someone. Um, the essence of God is who he is. He can't be God without being those things. Are you asking how they relate? Or Well, then like, give me an example of what, what would I say about his essence of God? What would be... Um, <clears throat> well, he says things himself. Right. I guess if we're going to stick to this... The, what does he say about himself? You know I get uncomfortable with theology by attributes to God. Is that why you're asking this? Um, he would say God is love. Yeah. It's his essence that he is he is love. Um, and so, uh, and, at, and at the essence of God is love. Um, he says, "I, um, He is a holy God, uh, absolute and supreme." 
you could put in that category. I mean, to be God by definition would be supreme. Yeah, you're making me a little less comfortable, but, but yeah. I mean, this is how some we would talk for our purposes. Yeah, I wouldn't here. do theology from yeah. that point no. unless I want to end up, uh, you know, kind of canon to door type. <laughs> Calvinist, but uh, so, so give me sure. some give me some attributes of God then that that something that he uses to describe himself that that we can say okay, that is, that is God. An attribute. An attribute. Yeah, not God is essence. Oh, then he's all knowing. So omniscient. The th- kind of three ones are all knowing, everywhere, omnipresent, um, all powerful, omnipotent. Right. So. Omniscience, all science, all knowing, um, omnipotent, all potent, all powerful, omnipresent. He is everywhere. And so he, he does say these things. Uh, we could say righteous. We could say love. He, and we say it because he says it. Holy, just, faithful, merciful, gracious, and saving. Notice that all of these big, bad kind of attributes like omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, those switch when you are a believer and brought into a relationship with God. So for instance, if you are on the outside looking in and you have this big, powerful God, that's kind of scary. Right. But when he's your father through baptism specifically, but uh, not necessarily so, um, he becomes loving, right? And he's the, he's this big, bad dude is on your side. And so when we look at the attributes of God, who God is, we always think about how does he look only through the lens of the law and how does he look through the lens of the gospel and the gospel being we are saved and that we have a new relationship with God. All right. You have those attributes on that page. I think page 24 students, you can kind of look at those and fill out what I I had for you there. Um, uh, I think that will be helpful or you can just kind of look at them. That'll be, that'll be good enough. Uh, next time we're going to get into the Ten Commandments, Law and Gospel, and First and I'm Second Okay, Mike. Corinthians. Thanks for asking. First and Second Corinthians. Just a coughing fit. Yeah, be fine. <laughs> it's not you don't have any kind of virus or anything, do you? No, I think just tuberculosis. Okay, well that's good. You haven't yeah. been? Have you been to a foreign country lately? No. Okay. All right. I don't know how you got TB then. Uh, I don't know. I think you're lying to me. I think you're not being very honest with me. No, I think it's just allergies and fatness. All right. All right. Until next time, let the bird fly.